The sermon will be on verses 12 through 21, but I will be reading from verses 11 through 25 for context. And this is uh, picking up where we left off as Jesus made his triumphal entry. Here, for this is the word of the Lord. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. In our passage this morning, Jesus has arrived at his destination in Jerusalem. He came riding gently on a donkey as the Messiah. He does this publicly so that everyone would see. And he does this majestically as well as humbly. Because the image we often have in our minds of the triumphal entry is one of lowliness and meekness. The image of a Savior who has come to Jerusalem to finish His work of redemption for His people. And this is true and it is of utmost importance. But that is not the only way we ought to think of Jesus at this point. We should also be reminded... That he is not only the savior, but that he is also the ruler, the king, and the judge of his people as it was prophesied in Genesis 49. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. Though Jesus has come to save, he has also come to judge. And judgment begins at the house of the Lord. It begins with those who claim to be the people of God. 
But not only is he the judge, but he is also our faithful high priest who is concerned over the affairs of the temple. In fact, he will spend the next two days, for us the next two chapters, at the temple. So before going to the cross, he went directly to the temple and looked around. Now, what was he looking for? Uh, This is where going to Luke's account will be helpful because before making his way to Jerusalem, he asks his disciples a question which gives us a hint what he will be looking at when he gets there. He asks, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? In this case, the question is, will he find faith in his temple? Because that is where faith is believed to be expressed. You would think it is at a religious gathering. You will see faith being expressed. Now, how can you see faith? Faith is something that is hidden within someone. You can't see it. Well, faith is seen where there is fruit. So the question for us today is, where is the fruit of faith? Where is the fruit of faith? On the second day of Passion Week, as they walked from Bethany, heading toward the temple in Jerusalem, Jesus was hungry and he could go for a snack. He saw a fig tree in the distance with leaves on it. Uh, This would have thrown someone off because the Passover season, which is in spring, was not the season for figs. It was in the fall, yet there were leaves on it. Leaves were a sign that there must have been figs on the tree. So it caught his attention and he went to see if he could find any fruit on it to eat. Uh, The expectation would have been that there was old fruit from the year prior that was still on the tree, that was preserved through the winter, or there would be new fruit that came earlier than usual. Actually, this underdeveloped fig called the pagin is what many of the Jews preferred over the figs that they would find in the later fall. I guess it had a better taste. But it says when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. We're not sure if it was because of the bad soil or if it was scorched by the sun. But our minds should be drawn to the parable found in Luke chapter 13. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Uh, Think of how Jesus' ministry had gone on for three years with hardened people like the chief priests and scribes, and yet he found no fruit. I can't help but think of Jesus as the owner of the fig tree who has come to deal with this fig tree because it bore no fruit. And here we see the human and the divine nature in Jesus. We see the human in the fact that he was hungry. And he wanted something to eat. And then we see the human and the divine as a prophet and the divine Lord with his words of judgment on this barren fig tree. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. In Matthew's account it says, And the fig tree withered at once, although Peter would not notice until the next day. 
This is an odd miracle. And it seems spiteful on the part of Jesus. Normally, Jesus' miracles demonstrate restoration and new life. But this miracle demonstrates judgment and death. And it seems to serve no purpose. What was the purpose here? Notice what, he's, what it says. And his disciples heard it. That was the purpose. He wanted his disciples to hear because he was still teaching them in parables. This is what we call an acted parable. It is a living parable. Jesus brought a parable to life. It was filled with symbolism. And it was a warning for his disciples For his disciples then, and it is a warning for his disciples now. And it manifested itself in the temple. Now, in order to understand the symbolism, we must go back to the Old Testament and consider how God referred to Israel. At times, God referred to Israel by using nature names or metaphors to identify what she is in relation to God. One example would be the grapevine. And she is expected to bear good fruits from that vine. And this is ultimately fulfilled in the famous passage when Jesus says of himself, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. That is a good hint at what was to follow. Also, Israel is identified as a fig tree, which is expected to bear fruit. But unfortunately, Israel has fallen under the condemnation of not bearing any fruit, just as in uh, Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 13. When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered. Israel was symbolically considered to be a barren fig tree with nothing to show for herself, but the leaves, or the outer dress, the formality, the rituals. They are found similar to the way that Adam and Eve were found after they sinned. They had fig leaves to hide their nakedness, but they had no fruit. They were empty. It is just like this fig tree with leaves coming out before the season for figs. It was making a promise it could not keep. That was the state of Israel at this point. That was the state of the temple. They were without God. This is why Jesus wept over the state of Jerusalem right before he entered the temple. Because this cursing of the fig tree symbolizes the real life situation in what he finds in the temple and how he judges the temple. See, the temple was to be the center of the worship of God. 
And it had become the symbol of Israel's national identity, just like the White House is the symbol of the United States, as we find it on our $20 bill. The temple was the symbol of God and his people, Israel. So what happens when Jesus walks into the place that was meant for the worship of God? Well, he finds people buying and selling merchandise, uh, specifically animals used for the sacrifices such as pigeons, sheep, and oxen. And there are money changers who set up tables to exchange the buyer's currency to Tyrian, which was the coinage used to pay the temple tax. So Jesus saw all this and he became indignant, filled with righteous anger. He was filled with a holy wrath which moved him to drive out all of the money changers and those who were buying and selling. And he overturned their tables. He was so angry, he didn't even allow anyone to carry what they just bought through the temple. In John's account, it says that he made a whip of cords to whip cattle out of the temple. That's how you get cattle moving. For those who are wondering. I'm not saying you try it, but stick to the dogs, I guess. The depiction of Jesus is often portrayed as a pacifist. The image of Jesus in our culture often contradicts this image that we find in Mark's account. This image of Jesus contradicts the pacifist Jesus of our culture. This Jesus, the true Jesus, is presented as a radical or extremist. He wasn't as laid back as you thought he was. Now the question in our mind should always be, why? Why was he so angry? And why did he drive out the money changers, the sellers, and the buyers? Was it because there was some sort of injustice and exploitation going on? Uh, Possibly. You, You see, it was known that the merchants selling these animals used to sell them at the Mount of Olives. Then over time, the merchants and the money changers were invited by the leaders of the temple to come into the temple so that they would be able to sell them within the temple's outer courts. For a slight fee, of course. Now, what would it profit the merchants to sell within the temple courts? Well, wouldn't most people bring their own sacrifices? Yes, but also within the temple courts, there were inspectors who would inspect the sacrifices to make sure they were truly unblemished. And if they were not, the Jewish leaders would direct them to the merchants who were right there within the temple courts. You see, it was a good place to sell. They had a good market. It was the perfect place and any opportunist would have taken advantage of the situation. Here are some fresh animals for the sacrifice. They are truly unblemished, unlike yours. Notice the the profits that they would have gained by doing such a thing. And of course, the money changers were there to exploit those who did not have the right coinage, especially the Gentiles. So they would up the price of exchange 
It was pretty much a one-stop shop. It became a marketplace. So was there a level of exploitation? Yes, I believe so. But that was not all that drove Jesus to anger. He wasn't only upset over human exploitation. Uh, Because they could have set up shops somewhere else. And I doubt Jesus would have run them out. Rather, he states the reason. He says, this is not the place to do such things. You are in the house of God. You are in my father's house. He was teaching them and saying to them, quoting Isaiah 56 and Jeremiah 7 as as we read earlier. Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. But here is the judgment speaking specifically to the Jewish leaders. He says, you have made it a den of robbers. The temple was meant to be a house of prayer, a place where the weary pilgrim goes to seek refuge and to give reverent worship to God and to rely on God by laying out all his needs through prayer. And it was meant to be for all nations, for the Gentiles as well as the Jews. Because the most likely place where they set up shop was in the outer courts. That is the Gentile courts. Where the Gentiles would pray and worship God. You see, they had such a low view of the Gentiles that it was no big deal for them to buy and sell in their courts. It was no big deal that they wouldn't be able to pray because of all the noise and the busyness going on around them. They were not really the people of God anyway. The temple was to be a place where all people would come to approach God and commune with God but they became like the people that the Lord refers to in Jeremiah. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered? Only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? They were blind to themselves. They thought they were the people of God simply because they kept a form of religion in the temple. Judaism by this time devoted themselves to a ritual, an outward show. It devolved into merely ceremonial, ritualistic, and legalistic practices. And the temple was a den of robbers, not only because they were exploiting and robbing others, but because they were robbing God of His worship. Remember Ezekiel 11, verse 23, the glory of the Lord left the temple, and only now did it return with a word of judgment. That is why He was angry. He was angry the way a husband would be angry and should be angry when he finds another man in his bed. He's not going to politely ask him to leave. Excuse me, sir, could you please find your way to the door? Thank you. No. He's going to shout out. Get your stuff and get out of here. You do not belong here. 
If you're going to come into my house and treat it like a marketplace to sell and buy goods, then you should leave. So much for a Jesus who welcomes everybody. Don't get me wrong, Jesus is welcoming, but not when God's name and God's worship is profaned. Especially by those who know better, by his own people. Here, the same one who said that he will not cry aloud or make his voice heard in the street, who will be like a lamb silent before his shearers, is the same one who was heard loud and clear in the temple that day. You see, there is this view of Christ and an expectation of Christians out there that we are always to conduct ourselves like Ned Flanders from The Simpsons. If you don't understand my illusion... And if you don't get the illustration, that is to be quirky and passive and naive or clueless. That we should never raise our voice or fight back. That we should never have any rough edges. But if the world was to witness what Jesus did on that day, they would conclude that he was losing it. That he lost his mind. But the question is always, why? Think of Psalm 69. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. It was a zeal for the Lord and his worship. It wasn't for any old cause. This should convict us to ask ourselves, are we marked by a true zeal for the Lord? Are we known for taking the worship of God seriously, not casually? Are we being driven by a zeal for the Lord when we see His name being profaned? Not just out there, but within the church. How many false teachers are out there and are always trying to sell us something in the name of God during the worship of God? Send me some money and you will be blessed. Who wants some healing? I got some. Just come down the aisle. Or I'll send you my snot rag with some holy water on it. It may sound funny. But shouldn't that infuriate us? Shouldn't that infuriate us? Now, we must be on guard that whenever we fly off the handle, we just don't start saying that everything is because I have a zeal for the Lord. I just had to punch that guy in the face. No, we're not talking about ego. We're talking about a true zeal for God and His worship. And when we come to God in prayer, is it with reverent adoration and awe of who He is? Do we think of those around us When we are in worship? Do we honor the Lord in our lives and in our worship? Or do we treat the gathering of the people of God as just some other club that we have joined? Do we not realize that God is especially present by His grace among His people? Also remember that He came to judge. He did not just come to restore the temple. Right? He didn't just come to reform it or correct it. 
He knew that the next day, uh, those tables would have probably gone back up, and the buying and the selling, the hustle and the bustle would have continued. All the while, they would ignore the reason why the temple was there in the first place. It was there for God, but it became godless. And Jesus came to judge for this reason. He came and he saw that the chief priests and scribes had only an outward show of religion and they were completely hardened against Jesus' message. And his words were the words of God. And they rejected those words, they rejected the warnings. And it was evident by their fruits. Listen. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it. And were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him. Because all the crowd was was astonished at his teaching. They wanted to destroy him for preaching God's word. And because he was getting popular with the people. They cared what the people thought, but not what God thought. The glory had departed from this temple. When he returned, they rejected him. No fruits whatsoever. He spoke the truth and they didn't listen. And listen, that could be any of us. On any given Sunday. When our flesh is disturbed by the word of God. We ought to be on guard because we do not want to be like the fig tree or like the temple with no fruit to show to back up our profession of faith. And the judgment that Jesus declared on the temple was again visually depicted in the withering of the fig tree down to its roots. And Peter noticed it after they went out of the city for the night and as they passed by it the next morning, he remembered and said, Rabbi, look, The fig tree that you cursed has withered. They were probably shocked because the withering process usually takes months or years, not just one day or instantaneously. But they were to look at it and say, that's the temple. It is withering away. It will no longer serve the purpose it was meant to serve. It's over. It's over. Because this judgment on the temple was not in order to rebuild another edifice made of stone. Rather, this marks the end of the temple building. This judgment was inevitable. And rather, Jesus himself, meaning his flesh, has come to replace the temple. And as they seek to destroy him, he will say to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. He was speaking about the temple of his body. And that is the answer as to how we are able to bear fruit as Christians. He is the temple that is destroyed and in three days he was raised. And through his redemptive work, He remakes us as temples of the Holy Spirit, which will bear good fruit as long as we abide in Him. This occasion is called the cleansing of the temple, and He has promised to cleanse our temples. Like in Ezekiel, we find, I will sprinkle clean water on you, 
And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Jesus went into this temple with Basically, two questions. Will I find fruit? And will I find faith? Well, he didn't find fruit. So, he didn't find faith. Where there is no fruit, there is no faith. All he found was leaves. All he found was an outward covering. It looked like the temple on the outside. And the Jewish leaders looked godly on the outside. They participated in all the rituals and sacrifices of the temple. They may have even sung lively and uplifting praise to God. Yet Jesus would say of these, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And later they would even conspire and kill Jesus. That was their fruit. It was no fruit at all. It was completely rotten. And the tree was withered. You see this passage is here as a warning for all of us. It is here so that we would say of ourselves. Is this me? Is this me? Is this our church? Is there any fruit? We could do everything to give the impression of fruitfulness and faithfulness while at the same time possess neither fruit nor faith. We could just be wearing leaves to cover our lack of fruit. One way we can ask ourselves is do we live however way we want during the week and then show up on Sunday morning and say with the hypocrites, we are delivered. Well, where's the evidence that you have been delivered? We could be calling everyone else to repent and believe, but the question must always come back to us. Have we, looking in the mirror, have I repented and believed? And when we come here, do we treat the gathering of the people of God as unimportant? I'll be fine with or without it. But Jesus said that his father is seeking a people, plural, People, more than one, not just one person. People to worship Him in spirit and truth. And the good news is, if you don't see any fruit of godly living, look to Jesus. Because just like He cursed the fig tree and it withered, He is also able to revive it and give it life. Rely on His promises to cleanse you and enable you to cleanse yourself. Because we still do have a responsibility to do so. As Paul says, to cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. And bear fruit in and through Jesus. For it is only through Jesus that we can bear fruit. For without Him we can do nothing. Not without the know-how. 
not without the secret knowledge. You know, there are people that teach that Jesus was this Eastern mystic who was teaching some secret knowledge in order to bear a good fruit of a good life or some nonsense like that. No. He's not rehashing Hinduism. He's not uh, Gandhi before Gandhi came or some silly notion like that. He told his disciples, without him, without him, not the know-how, not the secret knowledge, none of those things. Without him, you can do nothing. He made himself the object of faith. Without him, we are just covered in leaves with no fruit. Let us take to heart what has been said today and remember Jesus in all that we do and think. Amen.